For most of us, the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins is the major meaning of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Our Savior and Redeemer endured incomprehensible suffering to become a sacrifice for the sins of all mortals who would repent. This atoning sacrifice offered the ultimate good, the pure lamb without blemish, for the ultimate measure of evil, the sins of the entire world. It opened the door for each of us to be cleansed of our personal sins so we can be readmitted to the presence of God, our eternal Father. This open door is available to all of the children of God. In unfair situations, one of our tasks is to trust that all that is unfair about life can be made right through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ overcame the world and absorbed all unfairness. He empathizes perfectly with us. Even while we suffer inexplicably, God can bless us in simple, ordinary, and significant ways. Because of Him, we can have peace in this world and be of good cheer. If we let Him, Jesus Christ will consecrate the unfairness for our gain. Brothers and sisters, it takes faith to be obedient to the Lord's commandments. It takes faith in Jesus Christ to serve others for Him. It takes faith to go out to teach His gospel and offer it to people who may not feel the voice of the Spirit or may even deny the reality of the message. But as we exercise our faith in Christ and follow His living prophet, faith will increase across the world. I've long been impressed by and have also felt the yearning love of the prophets of God in their warnings against sin. They're not motivated by a desire to condemn. Their true desire mirrors the love of God. In fact, it is the love of God. They love those to whom they're sent, whoever and whatever they may be like. Just as the Lord, His servants do not want anyone to suffer the pains of sin and poor choices. The love of the Father and the Son is freely given, but also includes hope and expectations. Because they love you, they do not want to leave you just as you are. Because they love you, they want you to repent, because that is the path to happiness. Then they can more abundantly bless you as well as love you. When difficult things are asked of us, even things contrary to the longings of our heart. Remember that loyalty we pledge to the cause of Christ is to be the supreme devotion of our lives. Although Isaiah reassures us it is available without money and without price, and it is, we must be prepared, using T.S. Eliot's line, to have it cost not less than everything. Now, when the love of God sets the tone for our own lives, our own relationships to each other, 
old distinctions and artificial divisions begin to pass away and peace increases. We must always remember that our true happiness depends upon our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, and with each other. One way to demonstrate our love is by joining family, friends, and neighbors in doing some small things to better serve each other, do things that make this world a better place. We might be inclined to say, of course we can have unity, if only you would agree with me. A better approach is to ask, what can I do to foster unity? How can I respond to help this person draw closer to Christ? When love of Christ envelops our lives, we approach disagreements with meekness, patience, and kindness. We worry less about our own sensitivities and more about our neighbors. We seek to moderate and unify. We don't engage in doubtful disputations, judge those with whom we disagree, or try to cause them to stumble. Instead, we assume that those with whom we disagree are doing the best they can with the life experiences they have. One of the most cherished titles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is Prince of Peace. Ultimately, His kingdom will be established, including peace and love. We look forward to the millennial reign of the Messiah. Notwithstanding this vision of the millennial reign, we know that world peace and harmony are not prevalent in our day. In my lifetime, I have never seen a greater lack of civility. Universal peace does not exist today. However, personal peace can be achieved despite the anger, contention, and division that blights and corrupts our world today. It has never been more important to seek personal peace. Jens of Denmark prays daily to live the gospel and notice promptings from the Holy Ghost. Jens shared the following, We live in an, an idyllic small half-timbered house with a thatched roof in the center of a cozy little village. I had not been in a hurry to replace a burned-out light bulb. Suddenly I got a strong feeling that I had to replace it immediately. While riding past the pond out of the corner of my eye, I noticed a small boy about two years old walking alone. Suddenly he fell in. I threw my bike on the ground, ran and jumped into the waist-high pond and pulled the little boy up. As Brother Jens prays each morning for help to recognize promptings from the Holy Ghost, even something as unusual as to immediately change a light bulb, he also prays that he can be used as a tool to bless God's children. My message today is whether we are coming home or going home, God is coming to meet us. In Him we can find faith and courage, wisdom and discernment to trust again. Likewise, He asks us to keep the light on for each other, to be more forgiving and less judgmental of ourselves and each other, 
so his church can be a place where we feel at home, whether we're coming for the first time or returning. The phrase, armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory, is not simply a nice idea or an example of beautiful scriptural language. Rather, these blessings are readily evident in the lives of countless Latter-day Disciples of the Lord. My assignments as a member of the Twelve take me all over the world, and I have been blessed to meet and learn memorable lessons from many of you. I testify that the covenant people of the Lord today, indeed, are armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. I have witnessed faith, courage, perspective, persistence, and joy that extend far beyond mortal capacity and that only God could provide. There has never been a time in the history of the world when knowledge of our Savior is more personally vital and relevant to every human soul. Imagine how quickly the devastating conflicts throughout the world and those in our individual lives would be resolved if we all chose to follow Jesus Christ. The pure doctrine of Christ is powerful. It changes the life of everyone who understands it and seeks to implement it in his or her life. The doctrine of Christ helps us find and stay on the covenant path. Staying on that narrow but well-defined path will ultimately qualify us to receive all that God has. Nothing could be worth more than all our Father has. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just nice. It is essential for all there is no other way or means whereby we can be saved only in and through Christ. The world needs Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ. Remember, the best way for you to improve the world is to prepare the world for Christ by inviting all to follow him. Church attendance can open our hearts and sanctify our souls. In a church, we don't just serve alone or at our own choice or convenience. We usually serve in a team. In service, we find heaven-sent opportunities to rise above the individualism of our age. In church, we associate with wonderful people striving to serve God. This reminds us that we are not alone in our religious activities. Without those associations, especially between children and faithful parents, research shows increasing difficulty for parents to raise children in their faith. We will be judged by our book of life. We can choose to write a comfortable narrative for ourselves or we can allow the master, author, and finisher to write our story with us, letting the role he needs us to play take precedence over other ambitions. Let Christ be the author and finisher of your story. 
Let the Holy Ghost be your witness. Write a story in which the path you are on is straight, on a course leading you back to your heavenly home to live in the presence of God. Let the adversity and affliction that's part of every good story be a means by which you draw closer to and become more like Jesus Christ. Ask questions to which you do not know the answer, knowing God is willing to make known His will for you through the Holy Ghost. Let your narrative be one of faith, following your exemplar, the Savior, Jesus Christ. On our journey as pilgrims on the path of glory, we know how easy it is to fall away. But just as minor deviations can draw us out of the Savior's way, so can two small and simple acts of realignment assuredly lead us back. When darkness creeps into our lives, it is often thus. Our daily restoration opens our hearts to heavenly light, which illuminates our souls chasing away shadows, fears, and doubts. The compassionate attitude of Jesus is rooted in charity, namely in His pure and perfect love, which is the essence of His atoning sacrifice. Compassion is a fundamental characteristic of those who strive for sanctification, and this divine quality intertwines with other Christian traits, such as mourning with those who mourn and having empathy, mercy, and kindness. The expression of compassion for others is, in fact, the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a marked evidence of our spiritual and emotional closeness to the Savior. Brothers and sisters, through your ministry, donations, time, and love, you have been the answer to so many prayers. And yet there's so much more to do. As baptized members of the Church, we're under covenant to care for those in need. Our individual efforts don't necessarily require money or faraway locations, but they do require the guidance of the Holy Spirit and a willing heart to say to the Lord, Here am I. Send me. I testify Jesus Christ is come to heal the brokenhearted. His gospel is to recover sight to the blind. His church is to preach deliverance to the captives. And his disciples across the world are striving to set at liberty them that are bruised. The future is bright for God's covenant-keeping people. The Lord will increasingly call upon his servants who worthily hold the priesthood, to bless, comfort, and strengthen mankind and to help prepare the world and its people for His second coming. It behooves each of us to measure up to the sacred ordination we have received. We can do this, I so testify, with my expression of love for each of you, my beloved brethren. Our eternal perspective not only enlarges our understanding of those who are continuing their journey beyond mortality, but also opens our understanding of those who are earlier in their journey and just now entering mortality. Each person who comes to earth is a unique son or daughter of God.
Our personal journey did not begin at birth. Before we were born, we were together in a world of preparation where we received our first lessons in the world of spirits. Jehovah told Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I speak of hope in Christ, not as wishful thinking. Instead, I speak of hope as an expectation that will be realized. Such hope is essential to overcoming adversity, fostering spiritual resilience and strength, and coming to know that we are loved by our eternal Father and that we are His children who belong to His family. When we have hope in Christ, we come to know that as we need to make and keep sacred covenants, our fondest desires and dreams can be fulfilled through Him. Miracles, signs, and wonders abound among followers of Jesus Christ today in your lives and in mine. Many of you have witnessed miracles, more than you realize. They may seem small in comparison to Jesus raising the dead, but the magnitude does not distinguish a miracle, only that it came from God. Peace amidst confusion or sorrow is a miracle. Remember the Lord's words, Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? The miracle is that Jesus Christ, the great Jehovah, the Son of the Highest, is responding with peace. The Lord does not require perfect faith for us to have access to His perfect power, but He does ask us to believe. Through your faith, Jesus Christ will increase your ability to move the mountains in your life. Your mountains may be loneliness, doubt, illness, or other personal problems. Your mountains will vary. And yet the answer to each of your challenges is to increase your faith. The mountains in our lives do not always move how or when we would like. But our faith will always propel us forward. He works miracles today and He will work miracles tomorrow. Christ graciously fulfilled the will of the Father through His infinite and merciful sacrifice. He overcame the sting of physical and spiritual death, offering us the glorious possibility of eternal salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ and come unto Him. This is possible because He personally experienced and took upon Himself in the flesh the pain of our weakness and infirmities.
President Russell M. Nelson, our beloved prophet, referred to this gift as the key to happiness and peace of mind. As we genuinely repent of our sins, we allow the atoning sacrifice of Christ to become wholly effective in our life. Our Good Samaritan promises to return. Miracles occur when we care for each other as He would. When we come with broken hearts and contrite spirits, we can find voice in Jesus Christ and be encircled in His understanding arms of safety. Ordinances offer covenant belonging and the power of godliness to sanctify inner intent and outward action. As we create room in His end, welcoming all, our Good Samaritan can heal us on our dusty mortal roads. Our Father and His Son Jesus Christ promise peace in this world and eternal life in the world come. In a secular world, bridges connecting science with gospel truth sometimes seem few and far between. Yet as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the results may seem more intuitive than astonishing. For me, it lays another brick in the foundation of kindness as a fundamental healing gospel principle. When asked, Master, what is the great commandment? The Savior replied to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, followed by, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ancient prophets commanded that there should be no contention one with another, but that we should look forward having our hearts knit together in unity and in love one towards another. Suppose Jesus came to your ward, to your branch, or to your home today. What would that be like? He would see right into your heart. Outward appearances would lose their importance. He would know you as you are. He would know your heart's desires. The meek and the humble he would lift, the sick he would heal. One look into his eyes and we would never be the same. Transformed by the profound realization that indeed God is among us. Now here's the fascinating thing which to me is the final proof that that book is the Word of God, that it must be God-inspired. In the last generation only, we've discovered how to make purer light than we had before. Most light is bouncing around, waves crashing into each other, going in all directions, so that the light coming from that spotlight still lights this side of my face by reflecting off that, that tinsel up there. Um, we're used to light coming at us from all directions. But we've now discovered how to send light in one direction. Laser light is the most common. You've seen laser light beams straight as a die. But we've also got what we call cross-polarized light. 
a polarized filter, if you can imagine, allows light through like that. But if you put another polarized filter at right angles to that, you've really got a very fine filter. If you take sunglasses and take one lens and put it at right angles to the other, it goes even darker. It only lets very straight light through. Now, people have taken jewels and precious stones and cut a very thin slice for microscopic purposes and then shone cross-polarized light through them to see what happens, to put it very crudely, what happens to these precious stones in pure light. And one of two entirely different things happens with every jewel. The technical term, to give you a bit of science for a moment, is anisotropic jewels and isotropic jewels. Now what happens is this. Some jewels in pure light, whatever their color to begin with, they may be red, blue or green, turn into all the colors of the rainbow and the most fantastic patterns. Other precious stones in pure light lose all their color, just go black look like a lump of coal dust. And it's only in the last, this generation that people have discovered this unusual property. For example, diamonds in pure light are nothing. Did you get that, ladies? They're not even... that? Diamonds, nothing. nothing. They won't be there. <laughs> no, so make the most of them here. <coughs> Rubies, uh, garnets, just lose everything. Emeralds. No, they keep it. I'm good. There are other stones that are anisotropic and go into these beautiful colors. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The 12 precious stones that God uses to build the New Jerusalem are all anisotropic. In pure light, they are all far more beautiful. And God doesn't touch the diamonds or the rubies. He doesn't build with them. Now, let's just put on the screen a picture of these stones. Yeah. Look at the top 12 stones on this picture and you'll see the stones of the New Jerusalem. Look at the four bottom ones at the bottom of the picture and you'll see they're black, no attraction, whatever. Now then, who knew this 2,000 years ago? No scientist knew it, nobody knew it. John the Apostle writing the, down the book of Revelation as the Lord dictated it to him, he didn't know. Nobody knew except one person in the entire universe and he knew and that was God himself. Where is that written exactly? Revelation 21, right. halfway through, and you'll find all the 12 stones listed there. And you can just imagine from the picture we've seen on the screen how beautiful the New Jerusalem is going to be. Mm. No need for do-it-yourself decoration or changing rooms there. No need. The materials that God uses will be fabulous. From verse 19, 21 right. verse 19. Read them out. Uh, the first foundation was Jasper. Yeah. The, uh, the, the second, Sapphire. The third, Chalcedony. The fourth, Emerald. The fifth, Sardonyx, the sixth, uh, Carnelian, the seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, Chrysoprase, uh, Chrysoprase, Chrysoprase, the eleventh, Jacinth, and the twelfth, uh, the twelfth, Amethyst. No diamonds, no rubies, no garnets, because they're and they're isotropic. Mm. Now, isn't that amazing? To me, that one thing alone would prove that the Bible was inspired by God because nobody could have known this. They didn't know it until our generation. But there it is. Now, here's the fascinating thing, which to me is the final proof that that book is the word of God, that it must be God-inspired. In the last generation only, we've discovered how to make purer light than we had before. Most light is bouncing around, waves crashing into each other, going in all directions, so that the light coming from that spotlight still lights this side of my face by reflecting off that, that tinsel up there. Um, we're used to light coming at us from all directions. But we've now discovered how to send light in one direction, 
laser light is the most common. You've seen laser light beams straight as a die. But we've also got what we call cross-polarized light. A polarized filter, if you can imagine, allows light through like that. But if you put another polarized filter at right angles to that, you've really got a very fine filter. If you take sunglasses and take one lens and put it at right angles to the other, it goes even darker. It only lets very straight light through. Now, people have taken jewels and precious stones and cut a very thin slice for microscopic purposes and then shone cross-polarized light through them to see what happens. To put it very crudely, what happens to these precious stones in pure light? And one of two entirely different things happens with every jewel. The technical term, to give you a bit of science for a moment, is anisotropic jewels and isotropic jewels. Now what happens is this. Some jewels in pure light, whatever their color to begin with, they may be red, blue or green, turn into all the colors of the rainbow and the most fantastic patterns. Other precious stones in pure light lose all their color, just go black look like a lump of coal dust and it's only in the last this generation that people have discovered this unusual property for example diamonds in pure light are nothing did you get that ladies they're not even that diamonds nothing, nothing. they won't be there <laughs> no so make the most of them here <coughs> rubies uh, garnets just lose everything emeralds no they keep it I'm good there are other stones that are anisotropic and go into these beautiful colors. Now here's the fascinating thing. The 12 precious stones that God uses to build the New Jerusalem are all anisotropic. In pure light they are all far more beautiful. And God doesn't touch the diamonds or the rubies. He doesn't build with them. Now, let's just put on the screen a picture of these stones. Yeah. Look at the top 12 stones on this picture and you'll see the stones of the New Jerusalem. Look at the four bottom ones at the bottom of the picture and you'll see they're black, no attraction, whatever. Now then, who knew this 2,000 years ago? No scientist knew it, nobody knew it. John the Apostle writing the, down the book of Revelation as the Lord dictated it to him, he didn't know. Nobody knew except one person in the entire universe and he knew and that was God himself. Where is that written exactly? Revelation 21, right. halfway through, and you'll find all the 12 stones listed there. And you can just imagine from the picture we've seen on the screen how beautiful the New Jerusalem is going to be. No need for do-it-yourself decoration or changing rooms there. No need. The materials that God uses will be fabulous. From verse 19, 21 right. verse 19. Read them out. Uh, the first foundation was Jasper. Yeah. The, uh, the, the second, Sapphire. The third, Chalcedony. The fourth, Emerald. The fifth, Sardonyx, the sixth, uh, Carnelian, the seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, Chrysoprase, 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 the eleventh, Jacinth, and the twelfth, uh, the twelfth, Amethyst. No diamonds, no rubies, no garnets, because they're and they're isotropic. Mm. Now, isn't that amazing? To me, that one thing alone would prove that the Bible was inspired by God because nobody could have known this. They didn't know it until our generation. But there it is. I mean that quite seriously. One of the questions here, which I might as well deal with as we're going through, is what's the hardest argument you face? Well, the answer to that's obvious. It's the problem of evil and pain. That is the hardest question any of us face. And we need to think about it. Because if we've nothing to say about it, we're as bad as the atheists. They have, by definition, nothing to say. Because atheism is a hopeless philosophy. By definition, there is no ultimate hope.
And that's why the Bible talks about it. At the heart of our Christianity is not a set of physical laws, it's a, there's a cross. And that is answering a big question. It's telling us at the very least that God didn't remain distant from the problem of suffering, but himself has become part of it. That's a very different kind of answer than arguments from nature or the philosophy of science. So there are all kinds of things. It depends who's asking the question. And we need to be sensitive. You see, sometimes, very often I find, you don't answer the question, you answer the questioner. You try to find out where they're coming from, where they're hurting, what the problem is. I never forget first learning this at Cambridge in college at dinner. Uh, they used to provoke me, of course, because they liked mocking my Irish Christianity. And uh, um, one night a chap, but he was a very big chap as far as I remember, and a Christian had asked me to explain why I believed in the resurrection. I was trying to keep my voice down, but of course the lower I put my voice, the quieter the table became. And suddenly a student thumped the table and all the spoons and forks jumped. And he said, that's the most preposterous nonsense I've ever heard. How can you believe that rubbish? So I turned around and said, well, I said, you feel really strongly about this. He said, I do. I said, tell me, what did you make of Paul's evidence when you read it? He said, what? I said, well, I presume you feel strongly because you've got an evidence base. Well, did Paul talk about it? I said, come round for coffee. So half an hour later, he said to me, do you know, my parents shoved this stuff down my throat. And I don't want it. And I said, that's the first honest thing you've said to me tonight. Half an hour later, he became a Christian. And he has served the Lord for the last 50 years. You see, I got to the real issue. His anger was an outburst against his parents. It had nothing to do with intellectual arguments. So I'm trying to help you see that this question has no single argument. I mean that quite seriously. His praises One day when sin was As black as could be Jesus came forth to Be born of a virgin Dwelt among men My example is He The Word became flesh And the light shined among us His glory
distance far away Rising he just